Welcome to Paradox Walk Podcast, specializing in glitch in the matrix type things, anything strange, UFOs, cryptids, anything completely out of the ordinary that makes you think. Today's episode is in honor of my older brother's birthday. He was the first person close to me to openly talk about UFOs and belief in that type of phenomena. And my confession is I used to be a skeptic and roll my eyes at that sort of thing and even maybe made some inappropriate snarky comments at my older brother back then. But that all ended one day when I uh, watched the UFO fly in uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico, and I was forced to call him up and apologize. So this episode is all for him. Uh, I have a crashed UFO story today where someone got very, very close to it, and he is believable in the sense that he's a military member and another story about it this sounds completely crazy but that's why we do this podcast a school janitor of an elementary school keeping a ufo inside the janitor's office can you believe that so the first story here is one of the strangest things that anybody's ever heard of but it's uh, to me it's kind of believable it's really really freaky uh, this one's titled bizarre event in the woods i'm gonna skip a little bit of it but i'm mostly just gonna read it word for word for podcast sake i'm gonna cut out just some of the parts that are very detailed that we don't need for the story so this is a lady and her husband working on something called english ivy Early summer 2020, my husband and I had been isolating at home. Somehow we ended up crusading against the invasive English ivy that has steadily blanketed the parks and green belts of our Pacific Northwest country. For those unfamiliar with this devil weed, as she's calling the devil's weed, actually devil's weed is jimson weed, which was the plant I talked about in, I think, episode two or three. English ivy is basically a parasitical plant twining itself around trees, telephone poles, buildings, anything that will aid its ruthless drive to climb higher. The ivy is very aggressive, starving the understory of sunlight and nutrients until entire parks are reduced to unsightly monoculture ivy deserts. She's a really good writer, huh? The weight of mature ivy plants is enough to topple trees already weakened by pollution and thereby posing a threat to urban forests. Over the last few years, there have been a concerted effort to remove the plants from public spaces, but after close to a million volunteer hours and many millions of dollars, only a small portion of the plants have been eradicated. Now, I've heard about that, like some types of plants that uh, like cities get together and try to get rid of. I'm skipping ahead here. Just grow back no matter how much they, they spend on it. I'm going to go uh, quote here. So, ivy, re- ivy removal is simple but hard work, while some mature vines boast feeders up to a foot wide with the hardness of a thick tree branch. These have to be cut by axe, handsaw, or hatchet and are a bitch to get through. The vines are also attached to the bark by a series of needle-like hairs in which older plants worm themselves deep into the wood, making pulling the vine off of a tree difficult and potentially traumatic for the tree itself. This brings me finally to the glitch. Along an ivy-inundated trail, there is a fence with about 25 feet of very bushy, mature ivy. We had attempted twice to starve the majority of the plants. So she's talking about they went out there two times to try to kill this area of ivy. It's got about 25 feet of very bushy, mature ivy. We attempted twice to starve the majority of the plant by finding, I think she means finding a place and hacking through the main feeder vine. This main feeder vine we took to calling the mother. Twice we had cut through layer after layer of small vines to locate, then sever monstrously huge feeders. 
both times, however, there was no change in the mass of ivy. It remained stubbornly green and alive. We decided to have one last go at it. And after much hacking and sweating and colorful language, we located a massive snake-like mother woven around and through the fence posts like a fat and vaguely sinister anaconda. Something about it seemed so alien. The massive hairs poked out like endless line of lamprey teeth. The loops and whirls of the of those twined in every direction. A Jordian knot of thick and hardened vine. It seemed to almost ripple while we stared. A roided out beast flexing its unnatural muscles. I felt intimidated by a plant. I could tell my husband felt put off by the thing too, standing uncharacteristically subdued and quiet at my side. Finally, he seemed to shake off his disquiet and pulled out his hatchet. He eyed the spot he would cut through reared back and struck a hard blow. The very instant that the hatchet had cleaved into the mother, I heard a high-pitched shriek that sounded like it came from the vine he had just cut into. The shriek was medium loud, lasted about three seconds, and sounded exactly like one would imagine a B-grade horror film sentient plant would sound if it were shrieking in pain. My husband dropped the hatchet as though scalded and looked at me in shock. We stared at each other for a few seconds silently. I don't think either of us wanted to be the first to admit what we had heard, but but I eventually managed to ask him if he had heard that, to which he instantly responded, it screamed at me. I'm a pretty grounded person. I've never in my 40 plus years experienced anything mysterious, anything that couldn't be explained through logic and critical thought. I've never seen an alien spacecraft or a ghost. <laughs> well, welcome to this podcast. Never had a dream that accurately predicted future events or heard my toddler discussing his days of doing the Charleston with his favorite dame. I guess she's talking about past lives or something. She's, oh, wow, she goes here with it. I'm a firm atheist. I don't read my horoscope and I have zero belief that my quartz mineral specimens are working subtle magic anyway i don't know she wants to explain it away or have somebody explain it but no it's the it's the spirit you guys heard the spirit of the plant that's the answer <laughs> you hack into a big old plant like that and that part of its uh part of its spirit is gonna yell you guys just heard it because that plant was so big something that seems odd to me is she she goes on and on like asking for someone to explain it like can you make it so we didn't hear it you know what i mean she's almost like asking for somebody just to i mean her whole point of the story is that she her and her husband they agreed that they heard the thing scream the guy literally says that to her and she and he confirms it for her and then she goes online begging for somebody to tell her it's something else <laughs> is it really that hard to believe like if you took a hatchet and you chopped into a you know an animal or something it's going to scream is it really that hard to believe that a plant has a spirit like that that can it can feel something i mean to me that's not like a far-fetched idea i don't understand why why someone i mean she's obviously intelligent look at how good she writes and and she says back and forth with her husband and the husband said he i think the words were it screamed at me and she writes an entire article that the plant screamed at her i think it's that's the name of the title of the article so psychology of that is just seems so odd to me you hear something and you see something that's what our eyes and ears are for why do we discredit ourselves so this story here is going to be about ufos this is a marine lance corporal jonathan wagant so the story goes like this uh starts off with him at his uh he tells where he was trained camp geiger north carolina and he got transferred you know how in the military they get transferred all around so they started him off as a avenger gunner at fort bliss in texas surface to air missiles 
trained in around 1996-1997. He was transferred to Laser Strike, and then he was asked and sent to a private perimeter security at a radar installation in Peru. Like they asked him if they if he wanted that job, and he said yes. And they claimed that they were all there, so this unit was there to track. It was a radar installation to track drug aircraft going in and out of the area. At this point, I'm going to be kind of using a lot of his quotes. But what ended up happening is the superior said, we have an aircraft that crashed, possibly friendly, and they need us to go there and secure the crash site. And that was at about 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock at night. And they were on like 12-hour shifts. So this is him talking here, quote, we went out in Humvees, we drove until you can't drive, like through, you know, like thick jungle. We work our way through the bush to find the area that the craft went down. And he says it was easy to find the area because there was a huge part taken out of the trees like a big area was burned in a big path, like a, like the trees were cut through, like a hot knife through butter, uh, like something was on fire and it was a lot of energy, like the trees were cut with like a laser or something very strange. His crew was the first to see the ship. The thing went up the hill and went up the ridge and it was buried in the side of a cliff. And we walked up to the top of the rift and there was a huge ship. Later, he estimates about 10 meters in width and about 20 meters in length. He's, he called the shape like a mix of an egg with a teardrop. And he says, I used to be into sci-fi movies, but this was like nothing I'd ever seen in a sci-fi movie. It scared me to see it, and it was confusing. We all climbed down, and it was buried at a 45-degree angle into the cliff, into the ridge. This is a steep cliff straight down, and it was dripping this syrup-like stuff of viscosity. It was dripping this liquid. It was everywhere. Purplish-green color. It was on the plants and everything. This purplish-green stuff. You look at it one time, and then you look at it again, and it kind of fluctuated. I don't know if it was alive or something, but it changed every time you looked at it, and you saw a different change of color. It was really strange. So the ship had like a hum to it from the ship. It made a sound like unplugging a guitar from an amp. A hum, a loud, deep buzz hum, and then it stopped. Except the colors and the shades didn't stop. The sound stopped. Then everything just seemed to stop. It was buried. I could see the back of it. I saw these vents, and I looked around to the other side, and maybe these vents were from for propulsion and this liquid was getting all over me it was eating my camis just like an acid and it got on my skin and ate some of the hair off of my arm i saw the top hatch half open i didn't see any lights but it was half open and i felt this presence i think the creatures were calling me it was weird it was trying to communicate telepathically i don't know i don't really believe in this stuff but i could hear it it was terrible it still comes and goes like if you sit in a car with the am station on to like but the noise turned up really high i think he's talking about like static and the static and the station kind of going in and out but he wasn't really clear about that the ship it was really organic and it looked like it was between an egg and a teardrop it was like art it didn't have any clunkiness or like something out of a shop it looked like it was handmade like art it was made out of like a metal but it didn't have any reflection on it i guarantee if i shined a flashlight on it it wouldn't reflect nothing like i'd ever seen before the creatures i think were crawling out for me to help them and that everything would be all right the superiors were sitting there hollering at us to get the heck out of there and after we crawled back up the dod was there i was arrested all my gear was taken by men without name tags and black camis they were older men in their 30s or late 40s and we were the first people on the position and then this government uh they were there and there was like a gap in the jungle that they landed a large plane with men and containment suits when we climbed up they were there when we climbed up the 
like the cliff when they climb back up the guys there in the black camis so they tied my hands and legs and zip ties and i was taken i was taken in a ch-47 and they were cussing at me and they were calling uh, me a dumb a-hole and why don't you effing people ever obey orders and that now i'm dangerous and if they let me go that they I would be dangerous and I saw what I wasn't supposed to see and I thought that they were going to kill me for a few days. And then there was this lieutenant colonel from the Air Force and I don't think he identified himself. But he just told me that I got to sign these papers and that he doesn't exist and, and that, that none of this ever happened. He was real abrasive, a real cynical guy, a real a-hole you could say. They said that if they let me out in the jungle to die that no one else would ever find me. And I didn't want to test them on that. And he had me sign these papers that I didn't see anything. And they sent me to this uh, installation. And I didn't go all the way in. I went in, well, I was seg segregated from other Air Force personnel for like three weeks. Other nations were there in this installation. The Chinese were there, and I think the Germans were there, all at this base. You could call it a cell for 15 hours, but it was more like an interrogation room. 15 hours with the with a light in my face, and they were yelling at me. I couldn't really identify the guys. And one of the guys that was there was the one in the black camis and that he was there in the jungle and he was saying all this stuff like growling these things like what did you see real girl you're a patriot right you like the constitution huh and i'm like yeah and then he says well we're on our own program we don't obey we do what we want out here uh, and they were really cursing in his face and telling him you didn't see anything and we'll kill you and your whole family for about eight or nine hours they did that by taking breaks one of the other things they said to him is that they'll take him up in a helicopter and throw him out and this whole time I was handcuffed to the chair and I didn't move. I guess they scared the other guys too because he talks about meeting up with the other guys and they didn't want to talk about it to him. But he wanted to tell a story and he says there were life forms in that ship and it was like someone was reading my mind. I felt a real presence. There wasn't much debris because it looked like it was just hit by a surface-to-air missile by a target fragmentation. I guess, uh, I guess a surface-to-air missile doesn't directly hit the target all the time. It just has to hit in the area, and it shoots all these things out like an explosion, like a shotgun. And it just has to get hit by something. So he says, I think the Peruvian shot it down because he heard that there, was a, that there were these craft flying in and out at Mach 10, and the radar is all cammied up, and the command bunker is located underneath the earth. It's like Star Wars in there. And there's these control panels that control the radar above ground. And all these controls, they're linked to other sites. It's really nice. And I had this guard duty. And these two girls start talking about these craft going in and out of the atmosphere. And my boss says that he wants the... He says who it was. I, I didn't get that part. But he says that uh, one of the... One of the bosses says that I want those logs. And these logs have all these codes. And these objects are supposed to be squawking. Uh, squawking is like... I think it's like when aircraft like sends out their their information of who they are and what their situation is or something like that. Maybe some pilots and stuff can chime in on that stuff. And all these maneuvers of these objects going at mock speeds and stopping on a dime because all these things have been happening all the time. These logs were taken because I assume they didn't want people to know that what these things were doing. And they, but these things weren't here to harm us. And I could see these creatures in my mind, you know, definitely more than one, probably four or five. Do I think this thing was alive, that ship? Yeah. I think they control the craft with their mind, and there's no controls or buttons that they push. And I think they were doing way more than uh, at that installation than tracking drug aircraft because they had laser range finders that were huge and all kinds of tech. We had live fire there in the jungle. The Green Berets were there. The murderers from Waco were there. Why were all these guys there? 
why would the Chinese military be concerned with some drugs moving in Peru? I know for a fact that our government, American government is running these drugs. And, and I saw all these other guys with biological suits, but their suits were more high tech with breathing apparatuses. And there were 30 of them and they marched right by me when I was taken away. This was routine for them. These guys have done this before. It was like a cold calculated mission. Like we were here to do a job and get the F out of our way. I think they went over there and picked up all this stuff in the ship and they took it back to the U.S. More like I was sitting there watching a film, like I was with these aliens and these creatures and they were touching me, not like sexually or with instruments or anything like that, just like holding my hands. And they had their hands on me. And they had four fingers, by the way. And then the interviewer asked, what kind of feeling did you get? Like a warm, loving feeling like you'd have with a family. And the closest thing I could say would be almost like angels. And if I had to go with them, I would go right now. And I had this obsession with that because I guess with the pain of the experience in the Marine Corps, I just wanted to escape. I was thinking about being with these creatures a lot and wanting to go with them. So these agencies are on their own and they don't obey the law. They're just rogue and they go off on their own. Do I think it's a project by the government and everyone has a piece of it? No, I think these guys are just off on their own. No one knows what they do, no oversight, and they just do what they want to do. And they're evil. These guys are evil. Do I think it goes all the way up to Bill Clinton and Congress? Keep in mind, this was like 1990-something. I think there might be guys that know about it, but they aren't going to say anything because they'll kill them. I heard Marine snipers and other guys talk about that, that, that. I've heard that these guys stalk people on the streets and they'll kill them. I know that Army airborne snipers do the same thing. I heard that these guys use Delta Force to silence people by killing them and that this goes on. And where do they get this money to finance? Very simply, this money isn't coming from government coffers. It comes from selling arms or selling drugs. And a lot of these businesses, like these spec ops, having unlimited money, it's not coming from government money. It's coming from selling arms or selling drugs. So this video can be found. Uh, the title is UFO Crash in Peru. And that is Lance Corporal Jonathan Wagant. So this story is about the janitor that kept a UFO in the school janitor's office. So this is second grade in 1967, and the person writing this was a child. Quote, a classmate of me walked to the side of the building at recess, away from all the other kids. Mr. Swan, the school janitor, stood by the entranceway of his janitor office. Mr. Swan waved us over in a way to have us check out what he had in the furnace room. Of course, it seemed creepy at first, but nothing inappropriate happened. And he really did have something amazing inside there. As we walked in, we saw a small disc. It was about the size of a Volkswagen. Silver gray metallic, very smooth. It seemed like the roof was clear or missing entirely. A panel of controls and a blue vinyl seat were inside. My friend yelled out, Mr. Swan caught the disc from the baseball diamond. The friend instantly slid against the wall and fell asleep. Immediately, a little gray man walks out, amazed to see him, but I wasn't afraid at all. We talked through feelings and thought. This little gray man communicates by mind. His skin was ash color. Large black eyes, but they were kind and sincere. No nose, just small holes. Mouth was a small line. Four fingers. Uh, kind of like what the other guy said, that these things had four fingers. Feet were different somehow. Body was childlike. And it spoke to this person. It said, we are here to remind you who you are. Somehow I was able to know how the saucer flew. 
it pushes something out of the bottom while at the same time is getting energy as something goes inside at the same time. And it seemed that was the part of the aircraft or whatever you would call this thing that was broken. The janitor brought it inside and the other gray man was hurt, but he never came out. But somehow this witness knew that there was another one there. At home, I told my mom, and at first the mom was concerned that the janitor did that. But after asking a bunch of questions about the janitor and about what happened, um, my mom understood that nothing inappropriate happened. Actually, the, the witness never mentioned the alien and actually didn't remember it until years later. And the friend, asking years later, only remembers the craft and remembers that there were no bolts or rivets on the whole thing. I guess one of them, if I remember right, one of them uh, was kind of familiar how uh, shop things were put together. I think one of their dads or something was into that. And uh, that was what they thought. Everybody that ends up seeing these things or getting up close to them uh, have a feeling that they're never put together by any kind of like bolts or rivets or anything. It's, it seems weird. Uh, sometimes the the words that we hear are like it just seems like kind of molded out of one big piece or something like that. Or some people actually think that the entire craft is alive, uh, like it's all organic and it communicates by mind, like almost like some kind of a mix between inanimate ob. I don't know what you call that an inanimate object, like some kind of mix between a living thing and a transportation vehicle. It's just I don't even know what to think of these things. They, they just seem totally next level like anyway so i first heard that story on the strange but true i think it's called strange but true stories youtube channel and then the other one with the lance corporal about the ufo crash in peru was dr stephen greer's channel he interviewed him and that channel used to be called serious disclosure but i believe in the past like somewhere between 2020 2022 or something he changed it to just his name, Dr. Stephen Greer. So this can be found on the Beyond Creepy channel. This last story is somebody that actually went inside a UFO, which I looked for more of these types of incidents that are not from Rob Lazar. So to look for stories that aren't Rob Lazar is pretty hard to find where people have, you know, that isn't like some creepy, freaky abduction where they you know, just get thrown on a table and scary stuff happens. Like, a, like I was looking for descriptions of inside the UFO. I wanted, I wanted to hear, like, descriptions about, like, inside the control panels, like, all this stuff. And there was one, the channel Beyond Creepy does a really good job of digging up these types of stories that aren't Reddit, you know, because when you go on Reddit, you can't tell if it's somebody's creepypasta story or something like that. He finds stories that are just top of the line, like... He does a really good job on these things. So this was 1976, and this was a mechanic named Jan Sedlecki. And this is Beyond Creepy's upload from February 19th of this year, 2022. And it goes like this. I'm maybe cut out a little bit, but he says it was August. And what happened is he thought a fire was happening outside when he was sleeping. He said a brilliant white glow suddenly flooded his bedroom, and he looked around. He thought it was a fire outside so because he had a garage you know and he thought it caught fire so that's the first thing he thought of so he jumped out of bed and runs to the window the garage was fine so the light was coming from somewhere else he wondered so he looked up and observed this wow that's hard to say strange saucer shaped craft hovering about 10 to 15 feet off the ground it was a glistening deep blue color and it seemed to be wobbling and he got the sense that it was in the process of trying to land 
curiosity got the better of him and he got dressed and stepped outside. He wanted to get a better look at it, so he dashed across the road and hid behind a fence. The machine was unlike anything he'd ever seen before, and he watched as it hovered over a large expanse of grass about 75 yards away. The craft finally descended onto the field silently, and it was supported by several leg-like protrusions. A few seconds later, he observed a tube descend from the center of the object, which was a few feet wide and which reached the ground. Although the entire object was dark, an unusual glow was pouring from its underside. Suddenly, the tube opened like a book. Two humanoid figures, around four feet tall, walked out from the tube and stood in front of the object. They seemed to be taking notice of Selecki and began beckoning him to come closer for some reason. Selecki stepped out from behind the fence and slowly began walking in their direction. He could make out that a conversation was taking place between the two entities. He could not understand the language. The figures were odd-looking, wearing one-piece suits of a yellow-orange color and a kind of helmet with a darkened visor over the face area. They wore mittens on their hands and some kind of boots or shoes, which appeared to be integral to the suit. He also noticed a panel with a series of square-shaped switches and circular buttons on the chest of each humanoid. When the humanoids began adjusting these, Selecki was surprised that he recognized the words they were speaking, like tuning into a frequency that translated speech. He was now able to understand them perfectly, as if they were speaking his language. They told him that they were having trouble with their ship, and they would have to make their repairs before they were able to leave. We apologize for the intrusion. As soon as repaired, we go. The tone of the voices sounded tinny, like a little boy speaking for some reason, despite the strangeness of the situation. This bit of information seemed to put Selecki at ease. Selecki was then invited inside the lift, and he agreed. He watched the door silently close, and the tube moved rapidly upwards as he bent down to walk under the hole, which was about five feet off the ground. He noticed two rows of what looked like small rotor blades turning very slowly. The doors opened out into a metal cabin standing on, on a shiny surface. He immediately became aware of the smell of, quote, rotting grass. The two figures led him up a sloping ramp that spiraled around what he took to be the ship's inner perimeter. Then into a room. Around the edge of this room lay a two-foot-wide channel of flowing water with some kind of green grass about two feet high growing out of it. So Lucky then asked about the ship, including the speed, and how it was even able to fly. He isn't sure which one of the figures responded, only that it said, B-13. Then another door opened, peering into into the semi-light compartment. He noticed in the far corner four five crouched figures with their heads in between their hands and knees unlike the other two humanoids they were dressed in black one-piece suits with no helmets and had brown hair and the figures were gathered beside a circular pool containing a black bubbling oil-like substance from which flashes of red light darted into the air the light inside the ship was constant an unusual yellowish orange light coming from all the panels there were no windows or visible openings. Suddenly, a football-sized ball of orange light darted around the room, stopping and starting randomly. At this point, Selecki heard the frantic clatter of footsteps from somewhere on the ship, as if people were rushing about in a panic. Selecki was then told by one of the figures that he would need to leave immediately, and that they had a, quote, space bug. Selecki did not understand what this meant. He was quickly ushered down the spiraling staircase by one of the humanoids and was told to step inside the tube. As he did so, the figure looked at Selecki and said, when you get out, run. 
whatever was happening. Selecki understood that it was no joke, and suddenly the door opened, and Selecki took off running across the expanse of field as fast as he could go. Upon passing the fence line, he looked back and saw that nothing was following him, and then he heard a loud, high-pitched whistling sound. The tripods of the tube lifted inside the object. The whistling intensified, and then the object shot away at an angle of 45 degrees into the sky, and he saw red fire pouring out from its underside. So Lucky eventually returned home, and he never saw them again, or he never had another UFO experience. This case was covered in the UK-based magazine, UFO Magazine, Volume 15. So I wonder if the space bug in the first place ended up making the problem with the ship, you know. But it seems so weird to to read all these stories of so many different kinds of these creatures. Like, I've heard of, man, maybe like a hundred different kinds of these, like, types of things with, like, UFOs. And, like, some seem bad, some seem secretive, and some don't really care what they share with us, you know. It's just um, really weird to think about. I'd like to thank everybody for checking out the podcast today. The intro music is Downbeat 88 The Dark, and the outro music is Downbeat 88 Moment of Peace. I'd like to wish my brother a happy birthday, and my Patreon is Paradox Walk, so patreon.com slash Paradox Walk. Please remember to click the RSS feed so you can be notified of every future upload I have. I'm trying to do weekly or bi-weekly. So far, I've done four weeks in a row, usually around the weekend. And any crazy stories you got, I'd love to hear at Paradox Walk Podcast at ProtonMail.com. Thanks a lot. Have a good day.